You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, we begin this morning uh, a new and relatively brief sermon series on prayer. We'll be looking together at the first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, and I would invite you to uh, read along uh, with me as I study this text. Also, there's not much use learning about prayer without actually engaging in it. So I have uh, promised myself that I would, during this uh, sermon series, put new emphasis on my own prayer life. And to help me with this, I've decided to read a devotional classic by South African pastor Andrew Murray called With Christ in the School of Prayer, published in 1885. With Christ in the School of Prayer. It's a great book. Uh, enriched generations. And what's perfect for us here is it's got 30 lessons. And there are 30 days in the month of September. And I want to invite you, uh, if you would like to uh, work on new disciplines of prayer in your own life, to study with me in uh, this book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, each lesson according to what day of the month it is. So uh, if you're joining me, you're already five days uh, behind. It's being September 5th. Uh, you can let it spill over in October, that's all right. But you can track right with me. What I like about this is with each lesson, just a couple pages, there's a prayer at the end. So it leads you right into practice of prayer. Uh, I understand we've got some copies out uh, at the book table in Larson after the service, if you're one of the first ones out there uh, for sale. But you need not buy it. It's in the public domain, and you can just Google the title, and uh, you can certainly read uh, online as we go through this. Uh, First and Second Samuel were undoubtedly composed as a single book, divided into two books because it was a large scroll at one. And we need to read them together. And really, the book of Samuel is a story of the great king, the greatest of kings of Israel, King David. It's the story of his birth, his rule, and just gets us right to the end of his life. And David looks us forward to the one who would come one day claiming to be and recognized as the son of David, Jesus Christ. To understand the Bible, to understand Jesus Christ, we have got to understand David. And it's interesting to me that the story of David does not begin with David. does not begin with a king. There was no king at the beginning of this story. We're in the period of judges. It doesn't begin with a man. It begins with a woman. And it begins with a woman In prayer. This is the way the Bible introduces us to the one who would be called a man after God's heart through a woman who is on her knees in prayer. And her name is Hannah. And so this morning we begin with Hannah. We ask ourselves during the series the question, what is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is at the same time something so simple that a child can enter into the experience. It's something so elusive that many of us who've been Christians for years feel utterly dissatisfied with our prayer life. But it's something so rewarding that those who take prayer up as a discipline, as the discipline of their lives over a lifetime, find their lives and their spirits tremendously enriched by it. What is prayer is the question that the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, puts to its reader as question number 98. And so we call this sermon series Q98. And you'll see on your bulletin uh, that catechism way of teaching theology to children. The child will be asked 
98th question, what is prayer? And here's the answer of the catechism. Uh, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We'll work with that definition a little bit. It will furnish us the titles of these sermons. This morning, we begin with this first phrase, offering of our desires. What does it mean to offer our desires? Well, would you open up your Bible to the first chapter of 1 Samuel? You'll find that on page 213 if you're looking at the Black Pew Bible. And our text this morning is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And If you're a visitor, we say here that every member is a minister. You're used to the minister reading the text. Since we're all ministers, let's all stand together and read the text out loud as we continue in worship. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Han answered, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pour out your spirit now as we study your word together. Grant that it might fulfill its purpose in our life for which it was inspired. And invite us deeper into prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to talk uh, together with you about this text in uh, three headings. The first one, Hannah's desire, and and then Hannah's confidence, and finally Hannah's answer. Her desire, her confidence, and her answer. Let's begin with Hannah's desire. We didn't read this text, but the story begins, of course, at the beginning of the chapter. We find in the first ten verses here a story of her desire as it's emerging, but We learn also something about Hebrew narrative. Have you ever noticed how spare Hebrew narrative is in the Bible? How much uh, I I want the narrator to tell us, what do you think of what's going on? Give us your interpretation, and yet he withholds it. The drama of a Hebrew narrative unfolds usually through its dialogue. And the dialogue occurs not among a group like we have in uh, modern novels, but usually between pairs of contrasting characters, two at a time, they're speaking. And so this story of Hannah and her prayer and her desires begins and builds as we listen to uh, these interactions. There's an interaction with uh, Hannah's husband, Elkanah. There's an interaction with 
uh, Hannah's rival, uh, Peninnah. And then there's an interaction with the Lord. We find out immediately, we get the simple facts of the case here in the first paragraph. Hannah, whose name means grace, is uh, barren. She has no child. She's married to a woman, um, excuse me, a man named Elkanah. And uh, she ha- there's a, there is another woman in the relationship. Uh, uh, Elkanah is a polygamist. And he has married uh, Peninnah. So there are two wives. This immediately catches our attention, somewhat troubling for most of us. Uh, and, and we begin to see what this means to Hannah as we watch these conversations. First interaction is with Peninnah. And, and, and Peninnah, this uh, other wife, is described to us in verse 6 not as a, a co-wife or a family member. She's described, no, as a rival who provokes Hannah severely. Apparently every year, Elkanah brings his family to Shiloh. Shiloh is at this time the, uh, the, the, uh, where the tabernacle is. There are many places of worship, but this is the central one. Here the Ark of the Covenant rests. And uh, here Eli, the main priest, at the period of the judges, uh, will uh, serve those who come to worship and to pray. And uh, so Elkanah brings his family to the tabernacle, this tent, temporary temple, and he would bring food, meat, and it would be offered to God uh, on the altar and then return to Elkanah who would distribute it among his family for a family feast. And as he does so, he comes to Peninnah and he gives her some meat and then he gives his daughters some meat and then uh, her, you know, her son's Meet and all the while, here Hannah, who has no child of her own, has to watch this great distribution of food to Peninnah. And then Elkanah, because he is a loving husband, comes to Hannah always and gives her, we read, a double portion or a special portion, trying to offer some compensation for what she lacks in her life. Not half as generous of spirit, Peninnah takes it upon herself to shame Hannah. To establish her power in the family by putting Hannah down, teasing her, vexing her, irritating her severely, uh, verse 6 says. She's saying, in essence, to Hannah, if you had a child, like I have children, then your desires would be fulfilled like mine are. If only you had this, then your desires would be met. Hannah herself does not seem to yield. In fact, we get no response from Hannah. We get next uh, an invitation from her husband, Elkanah, who comes along compassionately in verse 8 to try to address her grief. Her husband, we read, Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? So brokenhearted, she, she can't eat this festival. Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you? Then ten sons. So Elkanah tries. He comes to her and he says, in essence, if you would find your desire fulfilled in my love, Hannah, you would not be sad. See, whereas Peninnah is the voice of the culture encouraging Hannah to find her satisfaction in motherhood, Elkanah is the voice of the culture encouraging her to find her satisfaction in romance. Now, we feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, with this. 
We look at this and we go, wow, that is an incredibly patriarchal society. We see a woman whose life is dependent upon the men in her life. She is bereft of hope solely because she could not give her spouse a son, an heir. In that society, what would a son offer Hannah? Not just emotional fulfillment like we would experience with our children, but also economic security. It would be the son who would hold her property, perhaps after her husband would die. So often uh, younger brides marry older men. Her future depends on having a a son. Uh, Social status, as it was the, the males in the family who held the property and who had voice in the community. Uh, physical protection uh, in, in the night to not have a son in the home could be devastating for a woman. And, and so this is the way the social structures of an ancient, traditional, patriarchal society operated. And that if then logic calls out, it presses upon Hannah demanding that she conform to that society in order to find fulfillment of her desires. If it's not to be found in being a mother, perhaps it's to be found in being a wife, a spouse, and in romance, in the love of your husband. And It's interesting here. We chuckle a little bit. The narrator wants us to notice something's not quite right in Elkanah's offer. He doesn't say to her, uh, do you not mean more to me than ten sons? He says to her, do I not mean more to you than ten sons? Do you see his sense of his own value? It <laughs> Shouldn't I be more than enough for you if I love you? And Hannah resists this. Robert Alter, the great Hebrew scholar down at, pardon the allusion, at Berkeley College, uh, makes the point that, yes, we do find polygamy appearing in the Bible. Uh, yes, we do find what's called primogeniture, which is that the firstborn son in a family is always the one that uh, is the really important one. But what we see throughout the Hebrew Bible is that God is overturning these institutions. God stands opposed to these social uh, orders of injustice. And in fact, in every case, God stands for the younger son, not the older one. We saw that uh, with Jacob and Esau. God always is at pains to show the havoc that polygamy shows emotionally, socially, spiritually. And here we see it in Hannah's life. The narrator wants us to notice how oppressive. This is one of the great insights of postmodern theory today. Uh, This idea that every culture promotes its own meta-narratives. They're called in postmodern theory totalizing narratives. That means they exert their authority, their power over you. They try to get you to conform to its norms. If you don't, then you won't. But if you do, then you will. And Tim Keller, the pastor and author, says, don't look down on this culture and say, oh, my gosh, can you believe how backward this culture is? Every culture, every culture has its cultural idols that call out to us and demand our compliance. Beauty. Wealth, education, whatever it is. But there's something in Hannah that allows her to resist. She speaks neither to Peninnah nor to Elkanah, her husband. She speaks only last in this third pairing, this interaction that the narrator gives us between her and the Lord. She comes in uh, verse uh, uh, 9 or 10. 
Now to the tent of prayer. She brings her desires into the presence of the Lord. And here for the first time, we hear her voice now speaking directly to the Lord. And here for the first time, Hannah reveals and discloses the true nature of her desires. Here alone is Hannah free now to be authentic. And she says in verse 10, the narrator tells us in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now she can hold on to who she really is without the pressures of conformity that society puts upon her. Why here? Why is it only in prayer that Hannah can offer her desires? Well, let's move, number two, to her confidence. We see this discussed unfolding in the narrative in the following verses, 11 through 18. It seems that Hannah knows something about God that the narrator expects the reader does not. In essence, the narrator is saying to the reader, get ready to be surprised. He sets this up with a little humor here. Eli, the priest, turns to be sort of like a court gesture in a way. We laugh when Eli looks at Hannah praying and mistakes it for drunkenness. Her lips are moving. Maybe she's one of the women that hangs out with his drunken sons at the temple uh, um, entrance. So the narrator seems to be saying suddenly, get ready to misunderstand the nature of Hannah's confidence. And here's why I say that. There's a lot of question among commentators about really what is Hannah doing here? Is she negotiating with God? Listen to the way she addresses the Lord in verse 11. Narrator says she made this vow. Vows very common in ancient spirituality inside and outside of Israel. O Lord of hosts, this is Hannah's prayer. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants and no razor shall touch his head. By the way, a Nazarite is someone who's not born into the priestly role, but who takes it up voluntarily in the, in the, in the holiness requirements of the high priest. And so what is she saying? Is she negotiating with God? Are we led to believe that when we come to God in prayer, he goes, okay, George, uh, what do you want? And now what do you got in your pocket? Oh, well, I... Uh, a little bit of faith? <laughs> oh, come on. A little bit of faith. Well, uh, I don't know. A quiet time I had last week. Uh, been helping folks cross the road. What do, what do you need? What, what's this going to cost me? And Hannah seems, if we're not careful, to be offering something in exchange for something. As though there's a transactional relationship between her and God. And the narrator says, you may be as clueless as Eli who thinks she's drunk if you think that's the nature of her prayer. But if you look at her heart, you will see a confidence. You will see an understanding of God that's very different from one with whom we must negotiate. Why do I say that? Well, two quick reasons. One is, notice if she's negotiating, she's giving away the very thing she's asking for. So at the end of the deal, she'd have nothing. 
She's asking for a son, and she's giving him away to the ministry. This would not meet her emotional needs, her social needs, her economic needs in the way that the cultural transaction was offering. Secondly, we see that Hannah's visage is lifted not by the answer to the prayer, but by the offering of it. We read here in verse 18, after she is finished praying, she departs. Then the woman, that's Hannah, went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Simply for having prayed, the tent door opens and Hannah walks out, and there she's back with Elkanah and Peninnah, having resisted their, their contracts for fulfillment, and her face now shows Joy. Why is she so confident? What does she know about God that perhaps we don't? I think it's that God does not operate with an if-then. He operates with a because-of motive. Theologian James B. Torrance says, Every one of us has to make a decision when we think about prayer. To what kind of God we think God really is. Is God a contract God? Or is God a covenant God? What does he mean by that? Well, a contract is an agreement that two parties make that is contingent upon the fulfillment of its terms. It's conditional. Have a painter come to your house. You agree to give the money. The painter agrees to paint the house. It's a contract. If either one defaults, the contract is void. Is God a contract God? Does God welcome you into prayer on the basis of something you offer him? A certain level of sincerity, a certain level of piety, a certain level of faith, a certain level of elegant vocabulary. He's willing to listen to you if contract God. Or is God, as Torrance argues, a covenant God? That is, a God who gives himself to those he loves before they are even aware of him. A covenant is an agreement between two parties that's a promise of unconditional love. That's its theological meaning in the Bible. It's not contingent upon terms. Uh, Torrance mentions the Scottish uh, marriage ceremony that used the word covenant. And uh, in that, you make a covenant to love one another unconditionally, irrespective of poverty or illness or what other conditions uh, might obtain over the course of that relationship. Before the relationship begins, you say, I love you and I give all that I am to you. And Torrance says that is the nature of God. Somehow, Hannah, whose name is Grace, must understand that when she comes into that tent... She comes before a God who longs for the fulfillment of her desire even more than she does. Who awaits her prayers with eager expectation, wanting to fulfill them as a parent who utterly loves to provide for her children. That's her confidence. And it's only when somebody has that confidence that God does not engage us in an if-then relationship, but a just because of, just because I love you that we have the freedom to resist the narratives of our cultural idols. It's here and only here in prayer that we can be truly authentic. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. Janie read that to us earlier. He says, 
present yourselves as an act of worship to God. And when you present yourself to a God who loves you unconditionally, you are free from conformity to the world. You need not obey the dictates of the cultural narratives that surround you. That's Hannah's confidence. Finally, Hannah's answer. We seem to think that she has already received her answer just for having offered her desires before the Lord and that she walks out of the tent, she feels joy and God hasn't answered the prayer yet. And in one sense, she already has. But it's important for us to understand that God intends for our desires to be met. And he intends for our praying to be a means of his meeting those desires. I confess to you that so often I try to protect God. I say, well, God, this is what I want in the midst of a crisis or when I read a headline. Please change this situation. But I know really what you're doing is you're not inviting me to, through my prayers, change history or the events, circumstances that have been eternally decreed by the unmoved mover. What you're really doing is asking me to change my mind about the circumstances, to somehow be conformed to your perspective. And that's all prayer is about. I don't think that's Hannah's view. And there are several reasons to believe so. First of all, Hannah ends up with a son. (laughs) Even though she doesn't need that particular answer to be joyful, that is the answer God delights to give her. Secondly, throughout this whole chapter, the word ask is repeated again and again and again. Ask, 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 ask. Most notably in the uh, etymology of the name Hannah gives for her son Samuel. Samuel means the name of God. Uh, But she says, I call him this because I've asked him of the Lord. Uh, Thirdly, we uh, think that God, this passage teaches that God is encouraging us to pray and look for answers because uh, Hannah addresses the Lord with the most powerful title available to her. It's the first time, actually, in the whole Bible, the phrase Lord of hosts appears. It's at the beginning of her prayer. It's almost a military term. The Lord of hosts, the one who has all of the resources, the armies of heaven at his disposal to come and intervene, to address what it is that we set before him in prayer. And then finally, we see Hannah's second prayer in chapter 2. It's a great prayer of God's intervention The God who resists the cultural norms of her day and of our day, who overturns them all, who has regard for the poor and who has regard for the lowly, who lifts them up, who makes them sit with princes, who heals them. This is what Hannah celebrates, this uh, poor, otherwise bereft woman, that she has a hope in a great king. Now, there's no king in Hannah's day. This is the period of Judges. So she looks with faith into the future on the basis of a promise made in Deuteronomy 17 that there would someday be a king of God's choice. And if you look at the end of this prayer, you see she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Anointed, that's the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Hannah looks forward to a day when this king who is the subject of the book of Samuel, will overturn 
everything that is false on behalf of his people as an expression of his unconditional love. One scholar says it's a description of the illimitable power of God as it is deployed in the reversal of human fortunes. There is a story I read in a magazine article this summer about a couple who go to Russia to adopt two children. And and the the gentleman whose name is Russell Moore says, "The, the creepiest sound I have ever heard is silence. Because they were walking into this orphanage and they were prepared to hear all the sounds of all these kids playing and crying. And, and so they came in in the evening and the kids were awake, but they were not crying. Why? Because they had learned over time that to cry out to a parent that doesn't exist got them nothing. And by that, they'd been conditioned into silence. It's interesting. They say we were there for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, several days. Each day they were with these two boys that they were preparing to adopt, and they would read to them and play with them, and, and they would giggle, and they, they would hug them and kiss them. And on the last day, a particularly moving day, they had to go back to the States and wait for the paperwork to process. They cried and embracing these two boys, and then they left, and as they were walking down the hall, it's then that they heard the scream because these kids knew. They had parents who loved them. How often, friends, you and I are prayerless because we do not believe that God will respond to our prayers. Andrew Murray, whom we're reading this month, says, We become so accustomed to limit the wonderful love and the large promises of our God that we cannot read the simplest and clearest statements of our Lord without the qualifying clauses by which we guard and expound them. If there's one thing, I think the church needs to learn. It is that God means prayer to have an answer. And that it hath not entered into the heart of man to conceive what God will do for his child who gives himself to believe that his prayer will be heard. This prayer of Hannah in chapter 2 is reiterated in the Bible. Another woman in crisis This one, not barren, but with child, and that is the problem initially. She's a virgin. She's not married. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, would pray in song, the Magnificat, giving praise to a God who would overturn society on behalf of the weak and the poor, who would answer a prayer. And this son, because he's a son, could teach all of us to pray, saying, Our Father. Do you realize how unusual, how extraordinary that is for the Son of God to say to you, when you pray, say, Our Father. Listen to his promises. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish. Ask and it will be given to you. If your child asks for bread, will you give a stone? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you, his children? This is Hannah's answer. And it is really an invitation to believe that we will find answers in prayer as well. What does it mean to offer our desires in prayer? Well, it does not mean, although some people think it does, to surrender our desires, to trample them underfoot, to give them away and get a new set of desires from God. No, what Hannah knows to offer our desires up to God is to offer them up for his fulfillment. Believing that the psalmist is right when he says, delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
That this is the interpretation I think we ought to understand of Q98, I think, is confirmed by Q number one, familiar uh, beginning of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? It's to know God and to enjoy him forever. God has created us to love us, that you and I might delight in relationship with him. And he invites us into prayer that we might participate in what he is doing through the whole world. Let's pray to him now, shall we? Oh, Father, we confess before you how uncomfortable we are in prayer, how ham-fisted we feel, how inadequate, but we rejoice that you have sent the Son to take our prayers on our behalf into your presence. We rejoice that you have sent forth the Spirit who prays Abba, and offers prayers that are fit for your ears on our behalf. And we thank you for this great woman of faith, Hannah. May her example inspire us that we might be bold to stand for you, to demonstrate in our lives who we were created to be and what the world is meant to be like, because we hide our desires in prayer before you and expect you to act. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.